Okay, welcome to the Friday Middle East Centre seminar, webinar in this case. Before we begin, I just have a couple of announcements to make. The format today will be as follows. I will talk to Professor Daboshi for about 30 minutes to give us time to look at some of the main themes of the book. And then we will go to a question and answer session. If you have questions, please do submit them as we go so that we can get through as many as possible in the last half hour. Could you please submit them through the Q&A box and not through the chat box? One last thing is that should you wish to purchase the book, Edinburgh University Press have given us a discount. You need the code EVENT30 and you can key that into the EUP website and you'll get a discount on the book, which is certainly well worth the cost and it looks very nice and it's a work of great intellectual significance. So, Professor Davoshi, I would like to first of all welcome you to the Middle East Centre at Oxford, albeit the virtual Middle East Centre at Oxford. It's a wonderful opportunity for us to hear you talk about your own work, which I think we've all been looking forward to a great deal over the last few days. I'm sure you need no introduction, but just briefly to mention that you are the Hagop Kavurkan Professor of Iranian Studies and Comparative Literature at Columbia, and of course the author of many works on a variety of topics which it's impossible to, to mention so much here, but of course they range from the very famous theology of discontent, books on cinema, books on Iranian cinema, books on cinema of Palestine, uh, history, culture, and so on. But I'm sure that this work is familiar to our audience. So if I can start by asking you some Fairly broad questions, Professor. And the first question is quite obvious, really. Why this book? And why now this book? So I wondered if you can tell us a little bit about the genesis of the book and how it fits into the general trajectory of your intellectual work over the past few years. By all means, first of all, I would like to begin, Stephanie, by thanking you for accepting this book in your series in Edinburgh University Press. As I'm sure you know, I'm a great admirer of your scholarship, and I was delighted that you have this series with Edinburgh University Press into which you generously and graciously accepted my, uh, my book. Thank you for chaperoning the book into final fruition. I'm grateful. I'm also delighted to see Eugene Rogan with us, I uh, just reminded him that he's one of our alumni and that we miss him right now because I'm the director of undergraduate studies. I look at him as he was a 18 year old coming to Columbia. We're delighted to have a Columbia connection at Oxford. Now, as for this book, as you well know, a book of this sort comes together from a varieties of uh, perspectives and reasons. And if I were to start somewhere, I would say the book has started from its end, the last chapter, you remember the book on towards the uh, liberation theology, uh, post-Islamist liberation theology, that I had written on post-Islamist liberation theology on varieties of occasions. But uh, as you know, the or origin of this idea with my dear friend and colleague, Asif Bayot, and also with uh, Oliver Roy, who have been thinking, writing about post-Islamism. I have my own take on it, but the question of the theology of post-Islamism was preoccupying me. And then habitually, I kind of thinking in terms of a, two bookends, I wanted to begin somewhere and end somewhere. It, it naturally went to uh, Al-Ahmad. As you well know, Al-Ahmad is a seminal figure, a quote-unquote controversial figure. People either deeply love and admire him or the other way around. And as I say early in the book, I grew up with Al-Ahmad as all young people grew up with their fathers. Initially, they think it's God's gift to humanity. Then they think, oh God, how could this man be my father? And then finally settled with, oh, he's just a man like everybody else. So it was a moment that I needed to, uh, again, for theoretical reasons, notions of the theology of uh, post-Islamism, I went to him, but once I started working on him, 
and rereading him and rereading some wonderful pieces of a scholarship, some of them by my own students, some of them by other scholars who have worked over the last 50 years. As you well know, and you kindly mentioned theology of discontent, I first had an encounter with Al Ahmad some 40 years ago when I was working on the ideological foregrounding of the revolution in Iran. But since then, a lot has happened. Wonderful work has been done, both in Persian and in English, and occasionally in other languages. So catching up with this scholarship was also very exciting. But perhaps the most significant discovery as I was writing was this four volume of correspondences between Al Ahmad and his wife, uh, Simin Danishwar, eminent uh, novelist of her own right. And uh, you may recall that halfway through, as I was writing, I wrote to uh, you and Nicola saying, well, I've just come across this and I will probably need another 20,000 more words or so as I was writing. That chapter became crucial in what I call gendered voice of Al Ahmad that reflects on many aspects of, of his writings. The other point that worth mentioning is I just finished a book with Cambridge University Press on travelogues of the 19th century, re uh, reversing the colonial gaze in which I cover about a dozen or more travelers from Iran and India who go to, around the world. And much of this literature has been read exclusively for their, the European part of their, uh, their travelogue rather than the entirety of their travelogue. And one of my point of contention was actually to looking at the entirety and not just the European part, which sometimes is only a small part of the book. So that background came to my rereading of his travelogues, his major for what he called four replas. So his trip to Soviet Union to attend an anthropological conference, his visit to United States for a fellowship at Harvard that Kissinger had organized. And then, of course, his trip to Mecca, his famous trip to Mecca and writing his travelogue, his Hajj pilgrimage, and also his trip to Jerusalem. So that was another aspect. But the third aspect, I, I, I lost the, the count. These are all in the process of writing that I, that I discovered, was his writing on his essays. He was a master essayist in Persian. As you know, the origin of modern Persian essay goes back to early 19th century, but he had a panache for writing essays that were particularly the, the, the parts that he was writing about people like Nima Yushij and Sadr Hedayat and so forth. And that prose became interesting and important to me. Finally, there is an autobiographical aspect of this. I just collected my work on Edward Said and published a book on Edward Said. Al Ahmad, as you know, was probably, or more than probably, was the Edward Said of my youth as I was growing up. And Edward Said was Al Ahmad of my adulthood. So these two books kind of reflect uh, each other. And there's a serious aspect of autobiographical narrative in, in the book. That is, I'm beginning to kind of have a recollection of how things happened, that I am where I am. So all of these things came together, gave the book a theoretical consistency, sort of marching to pivoting towards the end of the final chapter. That is not just the life and legacy of Al Ahmad that actually moves towards a direction that colleagues in contemporary Islamic studies, Middle Eastern studies, people interested in post-Islamism, uh, the writings that have uh, appeared, etc., they can find things in it that is not just exclusive to, uh, to Al-Ahmad. So that, in a nutshell, is how the book came about. Are we really post-Islamist? Good question. Uh, we, we seem to be post-colonial and post-modern and, and post all sorts of things. But I wonder, could you explain a little bit what you mean about us entering a post-Islamist yeah. The, my reading and, and definition is different from, uh, slightly different from Asif Bayat's and Oliver Roy. For me, Islamism, Stephanie, is a, a particular epistemic formation that emerges early in the 19th century in which Muslim intellectuals of the generation of Jamal al-Din al-Afghani, Muhammad Abdu, Rashid Rida, that generation, of Muslim critical thinkers and intellectuals are far more important actually than uh, European Orientalists. What they are doing in the work that I have done, I describe it as follows. They are actively engaged 
in a radical transformation of the spectrum of Islamic intellectual history into a singular site of resistance to European colonialism. And this generates a particular episteme of ideology production that, again, we can say starts with Sir Sayyid Ahmad Khan or uh, uh, Al-Afghani, Rashid Reza, and just comes forward ultimately to figures like Ali Shariati. But then what I mean by post-Islamism, that is that this particular episteme of knowledge production and ideology production ultimately exhausts itself. In my book on uh, Islamic liberation theology resisting the empire, I mark the events of 9-11 as the end of Islamism, not people were looking at it as the beginning of Islamism. I said, no, Islamism has ended. People were reading Osama bin Laden, uh, you know, some of my own colleagues for hints as to where his theology is, is moving. And my argument was that there is no theology. These are visual productions. This is violence for visual effect without any moral, imaginative, political, economic project behind the spectacle. It was just a spectacle. So, so let's say from Napoleon's uh, invasion and occupation of uh, Egypt to events of 9-11, that period is a, a period of ideology production conducive on this binary between Islam and the West. And my argument is that that binary has exhausted itself, is not producing ideologies and thinking and critical reflections anymore. It has done it for worse or better, whatever it is, has done. We have entered in the period of what Hart and Negri call in their book empire, a period that empire has no center. So I said the World Trade Center is a misnomer. A world trade doesn't have a center. And uh, because of the amorphous nature of capital, we have an amorphous uh, empire that has no center. It doesn't, is all over the place. Islamic critical thinkers have lost their interlocutors. They don't know who they are talking to. And this is what I mean by, by uh, uh, post-Islamism. I have to uh, control myself not to talk too much, give more chance for you to talk. Can I ask you about the title of the book? The Last Muslim Intellectual. I think people would be interested to hear you explain why you adopted this title. And I would also like to ask, was it intended to be a little bit provocative? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. No, no, no doubt. And if you may recall, initially, not you, but uh, Nicola, our editor, was a little bit suspicious of the title, but I insisted and, and she agreed. Yes, it is intended intentionally to be provocative. I was talking to uh, another launch with, a, with colleagues in Mexico and Spain, and a colleague from Spain, Professor Lutz, was saying that she put it on the Twitter, and people started objecting, what, what does he mean, last intellect, what about that, uh, etc. And my response was, and my response is, you know that famous joke that old-fashioned ways when we went to cinema and, you know, who done it, you didn't know who has done it, and if you didn't tip the usher, when he uh, sat you down, he would whisper to your ears, uh, the, the butler did it. Uh, so <laughs> I, don't want to, I don't want to tell, I, I want my audience. It is teasing my audience in a way, but I also mean it genuinely. That is, is a period of a particular mode of critical thinking that I place Al-Ahmad next to Messezer and Fanon and uh, so forth that in that epistemic constellation of critical thinking, who was the last Muslim intellectual, after which we enter a period of sectarian uh, bifurcations and positioning in which Muslims stop being conversant with the world. My objective is capture a moment when Muslims are conversant with the world. In a book that I published a few years ago, maybe a decade ago, being a Muslim in the world, I define Islam as a quintessentially dialogical proposition. Islam has always been in, in dialogue with Greek philosophy, with uh, pre-Islamic Iranian literature, with Indian uh, wisdom literature, etc. It has always been dialogical. Islamic theology emerged in conversation with Jewish theology, Islamic philosophy in conversation with Greek philosophy, Islamic mysticism in conversation with Buddhism and uh, so forth. And the same is now, that is the period that culminates in Al-Ahmad. This is why I 
create a multifaceted and a sculpted character that yes, he's a Muslim. Yes, he became a, a member of the Tudé party. And in many ways, he was drawn to Marxism initially to nationalism, anti-colonial nationalism, then to third world socialism, then to existentialism and all of these phases when he was translating Sartre, Camus and so forth. Yeah, he was genuinely a, a, an existentialist. That that ease and facility and uh, generosity and catholicity of learning were not uh, in, uh, in opposition to his being a Muslim. Many people thought that when he wrote his uh, Hajj pilgrimage that he returned to Islam. And my argument, he's never left Islam for him to return to Islam. And even in uh, the, his Hajj pilgrimage at the end, he says very bluntly, he didn't go to uh, Mecca to find God because he says, people who want to find God, God is everywhere. I went to, to find my deceased brother. So yes, in answer to your question, it is a provocative uh, title, intentionally so, but it is also meant as an argument, it's not just there. It is an, it is an argument that people can accept, reject, modify, oppose, agree, etc. You make some very large claims for the significance of Jalal Ali Ahmad. And you mentioned on, on page 59, you say a combination of Jean-Paul Sartre and Michel Foucault in France, of Edward Said and Noam Chomsky in the US. And then you mentioned Fanon, Malcolm X, C.L.R. James, James Baldwin, Amy Cézère, Jose Marti as the kind of company he ought to be keeping. But you also point out that he's not really ever been inducted into that pantheon of colonial thinkers. Can you tell us why this is? Partially, first of all, many of these, uh, if you consider M. Césaire and Franz Fanon, they were Francophonies, they were writing in French. And as a result, especially after Sartre wrote Introduction to Wretched of the Earth, uh, Fanon was immediately inducted into a domain of critical thinking of the colonial period. Most of the African critical thinkers uh, were part of the French Francophonie intellectual domain. And uh, the same was with people like Jose Marti and uh, the Caribbean domain and the Latin American domain. They were writing in Spanish and as a result, part of a different but interconnected uh, domain. Al-Ahmad was writing primarily in Persian and the language was not accessible to me. In fact, in one of his correspondences with his wife, he complains the about the fact that he, write he has to write in Persian and the fact that uh, he's not part of that pantheon. Now, Calling him as significant as all of this, it doesn't mean that they're all on the same level of uh, uh, rootedness or engagement or sophistication. Even among his contemporaries, there were many critical thinkers and, and intellectuals and philosophers and uh, university professors who were far more learned than he was. But as he says early in uh, his Qarzadigi uh, in Restoxication, Sometimes a horse senses a coming earthquake better than a seismographer. He was a agence provocateur. He touched on very, he touched on anthropology and sociology and comparative literature and poetry and travelogue. He, he had a restless soul. And then the fact is that he's, uh, one of my claims in the chapter on his relationship with his wife, Simin Danishwar, is that their combination had a provocative, uh, as you recall, I go through a whole series of what does it mean to be a modern contemporary couple? And many people have legitimately criticized him because of certain passages in his book, uh, Sangi Barguri, a tombstone which are, again, as I said, they are legitimate. But at the same time, for a man of his generation to put it in print that he could not tolerate uh, the fact that he had to take his wife to a male gynecologist is a historical document. It's not the question of, oh, how horrible that he was that way or anything of that sort. But the fact that he put it, committed that to paper. So 50 years from now, 100 years from then, we can actually read it. So that claim is not a relation to, for, for example, he was beholden to Ahmad Fardi, he was beholden to Mahmoud Human. There were many of his contemporaries who in many ways were more sophisticated. But at the same time, the, their sophistication, their knowledge, their rootedness of their 
command of various intellectual fields, also paralyzed them. They could not produce provocative ideas. Uh, but there was a flamboyance about him. There was an engagement. The same is with, uh, with Edward Said, if we jump uh, this way, that Ed Edward Said made comments about a number of his major book, Orientalism. He was making comments about the whole vast history of Orientalism that I myself, among one of his closest admirers, have taken issue with. But at the same time, there was a, a theoretical courage in the writing of, say, Gharb Zadegi. As you remember in the chapter on Gharb Zadegi, I was, I'm very critical of him. Almost half of the book is gibberish. Uh, it is only really one chapter that is provocative and engaging. So I am neither, as I said at the beginning, I'm not a great admirer of him, nor dismiss him, nor blame him for Islamic Republic. The trajectory of the book goes somewhere else, again, towards the end of the book and what it means to engage, to be a Muslim intellectual. And I have thought him always that he is a Muslim, he is an intellectual, but what does it mean to be a Muslim intellectual in his time and then in our time? You do paint a very intimate portrait of their marriage, of the marriage of, of Ali Ahmad and Simeon Dhanishwar. It's quite moving, but it does, it, it, it is quite interesting what you say about them becoming a kind of role model for a modern marriage with all that a very freighted kind of responsibility to have. And in a way, it is a warts and all portrait, isn't it? He does come across, he must have been a very difficult man to be married to, I imagine. Um, yeah. And then we have the story of the affairs and it becomes rather banal in the way that modern marriages do become rather mm. banal. So I wonder, you know, what is your impression of him as a man? Do you think he was um, a difficult person? Is, is, is the difficulties that he had part of the reason for his creativity? The best, we are, we are blessed. The next generation is blessed with uh, two absolutely exquisite texts that Simin Dhaneshwar has written on her husband. One, is, one of them is called Shoharam Jalal, my husband Jalal. And the second one is called Gurube Jalal, the sunset of Jalal. Absolutely a stellar example of Persian prose of, of this genre of a woman writing about her husband lovingly, but also critically. Somewhere, in, I think, is in uh, uh, my husband Jalal. Simdan refers to him and says, Al Ahmad is the first draft of what people know as the final draft. So, so uh, as a husband, he is the first draft. And then people know that uh, in Persian, we say Cherk Nevis and Pak Nevis, uh, that I know him as the first draft, but the world knows him as the final draft. Uh, as a model, one of the most moving parts of their correspondences is precisely the moment of uh, his extramarital affair and the struggle that she has to come to terms with this and writes to him. I mean, there is a period that I navigate when she addresses him, Mr. Al-Ahmad, Al-Ahmad, and so forth. And then they married, and then they have a varieties of the most gorgeous Persian affectionate terms, Jalalam, Azizam, Bizanadab, until the, this period of uh, anger and frustration that again, she goes back, Al-Ahmad and such. And then again, eventually it goes back to Jalalam Azizam. So this, this trajectory is extraordinary. And at some point she tells him, you must understand, I have a responsibility on my shoulder towards, uh, towards women of my, my homeland. And I cannot live with this and continue to pretend nothing has happened. And he goes through all his song and dance. And apparently when they both were invited to Israel, we don't know what exactly he does in the Tel Aviv airport, but something happens because she says, after what you did in Tel Aviv airport, we don't know, song and dance, whatever he, he did to apologize and uh, uh, moving on. It is in that sense, a very modern marital relationship that is, is honest. They didn't have children and that was a vexing issue for them, for their family and, and so forth. Uh, they had a, a creative and critical relationship with each other. Uh, Simin Dhanishvat tells us, for example, when they went for their walks, 
they come across a scene and then in their mind they begin to compose their stories. Well, how would they write it? And then they will exchange notes. This is the moment that I talk about anima and animus, borrowing from Jung in terms of the relationship uh, with each other and the gendered voice that, uh, that emerges. It is unique. We don't have, I mean, I'm sure we have, we have many such relationships uh, in any country, in any culture, but not a written record of it. So detailed. He was obsessively writing. Maybe three volumes of the four volumes are actually his letters to her and one volume of her to him. Obsessively, when he's, he's pacing and waiting for the mailman to come, he just writes, oh, I'm waiting. And uh, now uh, the mail, mailman didn't show up. I have to go to this party, but I will come back. He just obsessively writing. He can't imagine himself. While uh, Donishwar is in, uh, in a fellowship in Stanford, and they had some money that her father had given to them with which they were, uh, he was building a house. So brick by brick, he writes to Simin Danishvar, today I did the windows and then I bought the doors and then I did that. I, I did as much as I could in the, in the chapter of the book on Al-Ahmad, but as I say, uh, somebody has to go through these two volumes because we have an extraordinary document of what it means to have been a married life in this period. Thank you. Time is passing very quickly, but before we move to the Q&A, there is one thing I'd like to, one final thing I'd like to ask you about, which you made a brief reference to, is what you call the controversial visit to Israel. Now, some people would call it the infamous visit to Israel, and it really is quite extraordinary. And I wonder if you can, can tell us a little bit, because you are very critical, extremely critical, about as critical as it's possible to be in print, but I'm not sure you really do give us an entirely satisfactory explanation for what seems to be a complete failure of political instinct. Now, it's one thing that he doesn't know a great deal about the situation, but his instincts seem to fail him. I and I just wondered if you, if you can maybe try to explain this to us. The, the standard explanation, with much of it I agree, is the fact that this is the, his post in Shaab, is after he parted ways with the party and was extremely critical of uh, Soviet Union. And he was part of Khalil Maliki, who was also very critical of uh, Soviet Union. And the experience of kibbutzim in Israel became very attractive as an alternative form of socialism not just to Al-Ahmad, a whole generation of Iranian socialists who were dissatisfied with Soviet experience and were looking for alternatives. And the idea of a socialist cooperative like Kibbutzim was very attractive to them. This was, was uh, primarily what attracted him to Israel. And then he came back and he was enamored by Israel and wrote a travelogue and of all people, as you know, uh, the current leader of Islamic Republic, uh, Khamenei, came from Qom and called him and said, how dare you to write this, something like this. I mean, he, they loved him and admired him, but uh, nevertheless uh, critical. Until 67, when the 67 war happens, he completely flips. And then there is a, there is a sort of, uh, when I was writing my book on the revolution, I said, well, th these two parts could not be from the same pen. This is how odd they are from each other. But they are from the same pen. And it is the same uh, person who until 67 thinks some one way and uh, after 67 thinks another way. What I also did in this book that I had not done uh, before was look at the writings of people who were close to him, like Reza Barahani and so on. Because his brother Shams al-Ahmad was a devotee of Islamic Republic, casted a very different look including the conspiracy that he was killed by Sabak. There is no such thing as a, as a nonsense. Uh, but when you read people like his contemporaries, critical thinkers like Reza Barahani, you see that uh, Reza Barahani at some point says, Al-Ahmad was lucky that he was alive when 67 happens, so he could sort of reconceptualize his encounter with Israel. So, I wouldn't say, uh, yes, the notion of the failure of his instincts is true, but at the same time, there is something in the period of post-delusion with the uh, Soviet Union that, that they were looking for alternative modes of socialism that in part at least explains their attraction to Israel. Thank you. 
Thank you. I can see we have a, a large number of questions, so perhaps I'll ask Professor Rogan to uh, to begin to introduce the questions. Eugene, if you could. With great pleasure. And again, thank you so much for joining us, Hamid. It's been wonderful getting to hear you talk about your new book. And of course, to reconnect with my alma mater. So greetings to Columbia from Oxford. I'm actually going to jump the queue. I was struck by the way you brought Edward Said and Jalal Ali Ahmad into the same line of analysis. And the thing that strikes me is for so many of us not familiar with the work of Ali Ahmad, we, we really think of him as a one argument author. It's Harzadegi that we know. And in the same way that one might say that Orientalism becomes the signature idea that people know Said by, and yet any Said scholar would recognize that there is a much broader work that looks at culture and imperialism more broadly or covering Islam. So my question to you is in your book, are you able to break the intellectual contribution of Ali Ahmed away from just the Rabzadi that we have obsessed on in the West? How do we see him as a three-dimensional intellectual? I hope so. Uh, the first thing that I do, I uh, demythologize Rabzadi. That Rabzadi is really a constellation of a few uh, articles put together that there is a lot of cream puff around the main argument and the main, main argument is this and uh, we move on. Second, I pay very close attention to his travelogues, which is some of his most compelling writings, uh, travelogue to Soviet Union, to United States, to uh, Israel, to, uh, uh, to Mecca. And that uh, chapter in and of itself introduces a whole different aspect of Al Ahmad. Third are his essays in which he writes about comparative poetics and comparative politics. Fourth are his translations from European sources, from Arabic sources, from sources of Indian mythology and Persian mythology that he and his wife uh, translate together. So I do present a multifaceted aspect that does not negate the significance of Garbzadegi, but places Garbzadegi in a, in a larger context. For example, in the, in the chapter in his travelogues, he traveled extensively inside Iran and wrote what today we will call ethnographies, detailed ethnographies of uh, small villages or Kharg Island and et cetera, which have covered them in detail in order to ooze whatever is possible for us to uh, come up with in his extensive writings. To be fair, he is no Edward Said. Edward Said is a whole different uh, ballgame, partially because Edward Said was in conversation with the whole spectrum of other. Uh, Timothy Brennan's book has just been out and Edward Said is absolutely a brilliant sort of coverage of uh, the entirety of his work. And is not just the link between Orientalism and culture and imperialism, but Edward's work on the world and the text on the, his, his significance as a, a literary theorist, which is really the thing by which most people in the field know him. And uh, also his work on music, his work on Adorno, there is a whole multifacetedness that there were two different ways, but I happen to be their link in my mind, I'm their link. So as I said, the book in many ways is also uh, autobiographical. Thank you for that. I'm going to now open to the questions. They are piling in very quickly. There's a number that are challenging your approach to post-Islamism and indeed Islamism. So there'll be a couple of questions on the same theme, but we'll take them one at a time. From Iftikhar Malik, why call it Islamism? What is wrong with Islamic modernism? Islamism has violent and often exclusive components, while Islamic modernism all the way from Afghani, to Iqbal, Shariati, and Fazl Rahman was and is a genuine search for co-optation and synthesis. Excellent point. The reason for that, first of all, uh, Islamic modernism, of which I'm critical, because of the concept of uh, modernity and modernism is an exclusively European phenomenon and has perfect meaning within the European context, and it does not dovetail in Chinese or Indian or Islamic frames of references. But Islamism, the way that I read it, as I said, begins with transmutation of Islamic intellectual history uh, intentionally into a political site of resistance to Western colonialism, European colonialism. So you can say, I disagree with this uh, definition of Islamism and you're perfectly fine to go and uh, write, uh, define it the way you do. This is 
how I, in response to Stephanie's question, what do you mean by post-Islamism? First, I have to say what I understand and define as Islamism. As this colleague says, you can say, forget about Islamism. I don't want to talk about Islamism. I want to talk about Islamic modernism. Perfectly fine. Pazir Rahman wrote about Islamic modernism. Many other critical thinkers have written about modernism. Then the issue is not resolved. The issue is compounded in a different way that a conceptual category which is a specific to European intellectual history becomes applied to an Islamic context that may or may, may not uh, dovetail. The same way that uh, I'm uncomfortable with the phrase medieval Islam. Medieval is a, is a period in European historiography and chronology doesn't apply to Islamic or Chinese or Indian context. So yes, you can shift from uh, Islamism to Islam and modernism or modernist Islam, perfectly legitimate. Many have done it, but I don't think necessarily it, it, it resolves the issue. Okay, but you're not off the hook that easily because Joanna de Groot is weighing in with another question challenging the Islamist epistemy, as you set it out in a binary way. Avrani and the others you mentioned creatively and energetically engage with other cultures and non-Muslim thinking, as well as challenging them. Your comments would be appreciated. Okay, first of all, I don't want to be off the hook. The whole point is I'm here to be on the hook, not off the hook. I'm delighted and grateful for, uh, for these perfectly wonderful questions. Again, as I said, the kinds of engagement that a person like Al-Afghani or Sir Sayyid Ahmad Khan or Malana Maududi or, you know, the whole spectrum of them are doing, it is not, Islamic intellectual history is not a joke. It's a very rich and powerful a tradition, Islamic philosophy, mysticism, literature, Arabic, Turkish, Urdu, Persian, uh, etc. Transforming it under colonial duress to come and respond to European colonialism. This is what constitutes the epistemic formation of a certain kinds of ideology. This is what I mean. Again, you're perfectly right to, to question this way that I frame it. But the thing is, how else do you frame it? When you frame better off? Is it a better sort of inroad into understanding what is happening? I have one last question for you. This one is from Yusuf Hamid, just saying, if we're living in a post-Islamism or Islamist world, so presumably in your post 9-11 construction, then what are the main features and characteristics of this? Excellent. Excellent. We don't know. As I said, the, the period of Islamism is a period of a binary opposition. Islam is here, the West is here. So Islam and the West are on each other's throat, okay? That is, you take Islam from the West, Islam doesn't know what to do with itself, okay? In other words, the constitution of the West, a Western civilization, is contingent on the formation of Chinese civilization, Indian civilization, Islamic civilization. You need alterities for this thing to remain at the uh, center. The exhaustion, epistemic exhaustion of this binary which I use sometimes the metaphor of the, the Twin Towers right here in New York, the collapse of the Twin Towers or the Buddha uh, the statues in Afghanistan, in Bamiyan, the collapse of, the, this is the collapse of this binary. The binaries don't, now this is not sort of a speculation. It is predicated on my reading of globalized capitalism, namely the capital doesn't have a center and New York is not the center, nowhere is center. You pick up the phone and, uh, and uh, this very instrument that we're using is 18 hours backbreaking hours of uh, migrant labor in China, has nothing to do with uh, Steve Jobs or, uh, or Apple. That is this, this amorphous disposition of the operation of globalized capital has translated into amorphous operation of empire. And this is, I mean, again, this is not my argument. This is Hart and Negri, with which I totally agree. So alternative ways of reading Islamism, perfectly uh, plausible, has to be rooted in our reading of contemporary material, economic, political, uh, sociological reading of where we, are, we stand uh, in the world. Patterns of labor migration. Look at patterns of labor migration. There are right now, statistically, 850 million human beings going to, to bed every night hungry, 850 million. It doesn't really matter whether they are in Africa, Asia, or here right here in the United States, where about 60 million are under poverty line. 
which now uh, Biden is trying to address. 320 million human beings roam around the globe in search of jobs. This is even before the current crisis of running away with refugees from uh, war-torn uh, areas. These are demographic, material, economic factors that no longer allows for uh, Islam and the West uh, binary kind of uh, uh, assumption. And as a result, any alternative reading of our contemporary situation has to be rooted in these material realities. We're going to move from Islamism now. There are two questions that are bringing the ideas of imperialism and decolonization into the frame. So from Zubair Ahmad, he's wondering if you could say a bit more about the relevance of Ahmad's anti-colonial thought for us today. And where would you place this legacy vis-a-vis -vis the decolonial critique offered by others, such as César or Fanon, but also more recent thinkers arguing for Muslim or Islamic decoloniality? And Frank Damoni, on the same theme, just wants to ask whether it's really true to say that the age of colonialism is over. Surely what happened was a sort of false decolonization. So could we bring decolonization into the analysis? Excellent point, all of them good. First of all, if you begin with the period of colonialism, especially settler colonialism, and by which we don't need a very sophisticated a theoretical definition, the British in India, the, uh, the French in Algeria, the, uh, et cetera. You have a period of direct colonization in which you don't have just a question of economic exploitation, but actual cultural domination. Raoul Peck, uh, I, I think is coming to Europe, uh, just uh, we watched on HBO, the US premiere of Raoul Peck's uh, Exterminate All the Brutes absolutely shattering uh, four episode documentary that I highly recommend. So the period of colonization results in a period of decolonization or anti-colonial nationalism that results in a, in a period that you have post-colonial nation states. In my recent book, The Emperor is Naked, I talk about the proposition that the assumption of the nation state, the category of nation state was actually a monkey wrench that was thrown at Muslim or African or Latin American uh, societies, didn't work. And nations went one way and a state went another way and a state has no legitimacy, period, in my reading of it. Now, the, the question is, the key question is anti-colonial writings of the sort of uh, Al-Ahmad and decoloniality. Decoloniality literature that is emerging from Africa or from Latin America, particularly the world that is attractive, is coming from Walter Mignolo and others from uh, Latin America, is an epistemological project that is the decolonization of mind that you begin to think in terms of epistemologies of knowledge production that people like Mudinde in the invention of Africa is way ahead of us, way, way ahead of us, what, what he, uh, why the Modimbe did in, uh, in uh, Invention of Africa was in search of alternative epistemologies of knowledge production that went beyond the condition of coloniality rather than are we modern or were we postmodern or let's, let us talk about Islamic modernism. This is a trap. One has to look at the work of revolutionary thinkers like Modimbe, Invention of Africa, or like Walter Mignolo and a whole group of uh, Latin American thinkers who, who write about uh, decoloniality. To see the issue is not just the sort of the British collecting their uh, flags and leaving uh, India or the French from North Africa, but the question of changing the epistemologies of knowledge production. Some call these epistemology of the South. I don't think we can call it epistemology of the South because it's not now for so. I mean, where are we? Right now we are all in the internet. I'm, I'm on, your, the, on the campus of your alma mater, you are uh, magnificent Oxford, but we're all on the internet. Take this, uh, shut this thing and we're we are nowhere. So the location of uh, coloniality and anti-coloniality is a whole different condition today, 2021, than it was at the time of, of Al-Ahmad. But the logic of scholarship and critical thinking that has been done in Africa, in Latin America, and in the Caribbean scene, 
is very crucial for us to begin to reflect, not to copy it when it comes to studying somebody like Al Ahmad or anybody else in that context, but to see in what way they, they can have a productive and creative conversation with them. The book, uh, my book on Al Ahmad, in a way, is an invitation to that kind of decoloniality that is yet to emerge for. Uh, critical thinkers like Al Ahmad or later uh, thinkers, more sophisticated thinkers, uh, hermeneuticians like Nas Hamad Abu Zaid and what he was doing in Quranic hermeneutics. What Nas Hamad Abu Zaid was doing, and we have no Iranian intellectual or critical thinkers comparable to uh, Nas Hamad Abu Zaid, that is the kind of decoloniality that we need. You make me want to read the book. The more you talk about it, the more I want to read the book. <laughs> That's the whole point, man. I think so. I think it's going to catch on as well. I've got a couple more questions that I'd like to share with you. Joanna de Groot has come back with a question that sort of builds on what you were saying about the ideal marriage and the notions of gender and masculinity. And so Joanna asks if you could comment on the importance of a gendered analysis of Ali Ahmed's life and work using categories of masculinity and misogyny and linking them to the wider trends of sexism and misogyny in modernist Iranian intellectual life. And thinking in the mid and late 20th century, that's to go beyond the biographical approach to those issues. Al Ahmad, like, uh, 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 like his wife, uh, Simin Danishwar, Simin Danishwar, when she is writing uh, Sabeshun, she is in full command of an entire history and an entire genre of writing fiction, which is far superior to anything that anybody like Al Ahmad could ever write when she's uh, at her writing desk, room of her own, as it were. And the, what is important about Al Ahmad is that he's very honest, honest to the point of to, to, a, to a fault. That, uh, as I said, the, the first example of it is when uh, he, he has to go with his wife to a gynecologist. He can't take it that a male gynecologist is, uh, is uh, examining his wife. But the thing is, many Iranians, I dare say many British, uh, think the same way, but they don't write it and commit it to paper and publish it. And in fact, when Shams al-Ahmad published uh, Sangi Barguri, Simin Danishwai was very embarrassed. He said, well, how dare you? You shouldn't have uh, published it. It was, it was private. But when you read it, you realize this is not a private writing. He is writing it for the posterity. So going to uh, Joanne's question, what I have done, which is really based on the scholarship that many of our colleagues have done, Janet Afari and uh, Farzani Milani and, and others in this field, is uh, yes, of course, we are talking about a period and a culture and a context of misogyny and, uh, and patriarchy and all of that. But at the same time, something is happening in the core and context and texture and tenor and discipline of their relationship with each other. When you read them closely, that you see the, the vanguard of a different kind of reading of gendered voice. Okay, becomes evident. And here, literary scholarship, the fact that in, say, through Bakhtin, we can talk about heteroglossia, or through Jung, we can talk about anima and animus, allows us to begin to tease out from their factual writings, not imaginative, wishful thinking, evidence of a different kind of gender relationship that we hope will e eventually emerge. Because this cannot just be, you know, as I just wrote, uh, something, uh, uh, what's uh, her name? The late queen, uh, the, the former queen of Iran just made herself look like Audrey Hepburn. Well, we can do that, you know, there are plastic surgeries, there are all sorts of things. But that doesn't really mean that you have the emergence of a genuine modern contemporary couple who are Iranian in many respects, but at the same time, they have renegotiated their gender relationships in multiple ways. We have time for one last question, and this comes from Mehdi Askarie. He asks us to really take the conversation towards the role of Ali Ahmad to the revolution itself. He says both Ali Ahmad and Ali Shariati are thought instrumental in causing the Iranian revolution of 1979. Can you please give a brief account of the reach of each's role and the comparison of their effects on the revolution in 1979? You see, in my first book, Theology of Discontent, I actually string them together. 
first comes Al Ahmad, then comes Shariati, then comes Mutahari, then comes uh, Talghani, etc. But that's a retroactive reading of history. Al Ahmad did not anticipate the coming of an Islamic revolution. And I even dare say, if he were, he would have opposed the atrocity that is now happening. Shariati did not anticipate the coming of an Islamic revolution. If he were here, I dare say, and I say it, uh, he would have opposed the atrocities that uh, have happened. But at the same time, when you, the, the, this is a, what we call an assemblage reading. You, when you create the as, assemblage of all of these critical thinkers, you see that it's going to, uh, to a direction until Khomeini comes. And Khomeini's critical thinking is not rooted in Al Ahmad, is not rooted in Shariati is not rooted even in closest student of his, Mutahari. In fact, Mutahari was talking about the notion of Vilayat at the same time that Khomeini was talking about Vilayat in Najaf, uh, Mutahari was in Iran, completely opposite of each other. So there is no conspiracy of, of uh, uh, any sort. So one should avoid being ahistorical in these terms. So yes, today, if you go to Iran, there are highways named after Al Ahmad and stamps uh, named after Al Ahmad and awards named after Al Ahmad, but this is their appropriation of Al Ahmad for their own ideological reasons. It doesn't mean that historically we have to kind of go back and reimagine and retrieve what was happening at the time, which is the little that I have done to the best of my ability. Thank you very much. I, I think we have to stop there, although I think there are many more questions to be asked. The time has gone very fast indeed. Um, so I'd like to thank Professor Dabashi on behalf of Oxford and on behalf of the audience, who it's clear were fascinated by this account. And I just urge everyone to buy the book. Here it is. It's got a very nice cover and uh, it, it's full of the kind of issues that we've been talking about today. Thank you very much, Professor Davoshi. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Stephanie. Thank you, Eugene, for coming. Come back and visit your uh, alma mater. <laughs> and uh, uh, Stephanie, I just heard that Firuze is hosting you for the launch of your, your book. I'm very pr proud of her. You know, uh, Firuze was one of my earliest generation of my students. Yeah. Uh, and I'm delighted that uh, you'll be hosted with your book. Thank you for your invitation. Delighted to be with you, thank you for the audience, for the wonderful provocative questions. All I say is just go and read the book. By the way, the book is coming out in open access. I just heard I filled out the paperwork for open access to which I hope you will all have uh, access. And then soon, hint, hint, Stephanie will see to it that it comes out also in paperback. I hope so, I hope so. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you.